0: Well, hey, uh, good morning, LifePoint. Grateful to be online with you this morning. Uh, LifePoint family, welcome back. Guests, uh, welcome. Grateful to have you here with us this morning. And let me say as well, uh, happy Father's Day uh, to our dads, our fathers, grandfathers, maybe even uh, great-grandfathers. We are so grateful for you. Uh, My wife and I were watching this week uh, what is now kind of a social media version of what used to be like America's funniest home videos, right? When I was a kid watching off. I think the show is still going on, but they've got these videos floating all over social media of basically epic dad saves where the child, usually a toddler, is having fun and then does something uh, like that's going to hurt themselves. And dad comes swooping in at the last moment. I think my favorite so far has been dad and his kid, who's probably three or four, jumping on the trampoline. And uh, it's got that enclosure but the it was unzipped and so the enclosures open and the kid just bounce 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 right out of the trampoline head first heading towards the ground and dad comes swooping in at the last moment and grabs the kiddo by their pants and so literally the child is hanging upside down uh suspended from the ground and dad's holding him by by their pants and i thought what a great picture of fatherhood, right? Right, right there. Uh, on a more serious note, the Apostle Paul tells us dads, right, fathers, bring your children up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. It's wonderful to see those moments where a dad is there, present and, and physically right, saving the child from harm, but we have a spiritual responsibility as well. Uh, to be there and to be involved in the discipleship of the next generation. And so uh, dads, again, fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers, thank you for the way that you love. Thank you for the way that you lead. And, and dads, as a father of four, I feel this weight, this responsibility, and this privilege uh, to be involved in making disciples of our children. Uh, There are many things we feel like God has called us to maybe uh, as fathers, but the first things he calls us to are to love him and then to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And if we have children, uh, to love them and to bring them up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. Uh, Happy Father's Day. We love you uh, from all of us here at LifePoint. Happy Father's Day. We've been in this series, we've been calling labels, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, we've read through it, we're now praying through it, uh, setting a reminder, 10.02 each day and praying, Luke 10.2, praying the harvest forward, that God would raise up laborers for the harvest. We're actually going to be in the latter half of Luke 10 today. Uh, We're going to be in uh, chapter 10, verse 25, starting in verse 25. We're going to go through a story that probably nobody has ever heard of, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's a joke, by the way, right? Uh, Here's the the challenge with this one. I think that because of its familiarity, because of you you hear, you've heard that phrase, you've maybe heard the story a hundred times, even if you're not a believer in Christ, you probably hear the Good Samaritan, you're like, I know what this is about. It's easy because it's so familiar to just sort of check it off in your brain. If I'm honest, even as I began to study this week, I thought about it and was like, I know this one, right? Be a good neighbor, right? Uh, just just be nice to people but when you read it and you understand the context and the reason that Jesus tells the story you realize uh, yes that's true but it's so much deeper than just be a good person or or be a good neighbor we have to understand well, what does that mean why does Jesus tell the story now let's look at verse 25 and we'll understand the context it says behold a lawyer or a teacher of the law, or a scribe, if you hear those are almost interchangeable, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now notice, this is just something to pause at, it's the right question, but the wrong motives. I don't know if the man is actually interested in learning from Jesus, how do you inherit eternal life? It says he's trying to put him to the test. Oftentimes, if you read the Gospels, you find that the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, these religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus and get him to say something that's either going to get the people to turn against him or to get him in trouble with the authorities. And so, right question, wrong motives, and Jesus, being the Son of God, which is what Luke is trying to prove to us, he knows exactly what the man is doing. He knows exactly what the man is thinking. And so his answer, as we're going to see, um, does answer the question, but it actually goes beyond that to really talk about the problem of this man's heart. And oftentimes you see Jesus in his response answering the question with a different question that approaches the real problem. And so he says this in verse 26. He said to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? What's written in the Old Testament law? You're a lawyer, right? You're a teacher of the law. How do you read it? So he puts it back on the man, and the man says, he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, and Jesus said to him, He said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. You nailed it. Go ahead and do that, and you'll live. Now, uh, let's just note, the answer that he gives is not a bad answer. In fact, it is the correct answer, Uh, Jesus in Matthew 22, when they ask him, what's the greatest commandment in in the law? He says exactly this. He says, love the Lord your God. He quotes from Deuteronomy, just as this man has, and from Leviticus, just as this man has. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, with all that you are. Love God with your intellect, your emotions, your heart, your actions, right, your strength, everything that you are. And love your neighbor just as you love yourself. If you do that, you'll live. He says the entire Old Testament law and prophets, it's all summarized, it's all it all depends on those two things love God and love others. Now, in hearing that, I would imagine some thoughts come to mind for us. There are two things I want to point out. Uh, One, as the lawyer gives the right answer, he's got the right information. But if you notice, it doesn't seem that his heart is in the right place. He knows his Bible. But he doesn't seem to know the God of the Bible. And so the point is this, that heart transformation requires more than just right information. Heart transformation requires more than right information. Don't get me wrong. You need the right information. Doctrine is important. Studying the Word. That's why we've been spending a whole month saying, hey, get in the Word of God. If, you don't, if you're not in the Word of God, you can't know God. But it's possible to be in the Word of God and studying the Scriptures and not know the God of the Bible. This man has the right information, but he's got, he's got a cold heart. He knows. He can pass. And this is the test for some of us. Some of us, if we were to sit down and I were to give you a little theological quiz, you'd, pa- you'd pass the quiz. But you might fail in the, hey, do you have a relationship with Jesus? You've got the right information, but have you experienced the grace of God and had your heart transformed? You need the right information. Knowing the law brings awareness of sin. It can bring us and lead us to conviction, but conviction leads us to Christ, and it's only Christ that brings heart transformation. And that's where this man is. He needs to have his heart transformed. The second thing that I want us to notice that you may be asking is, wait a second. I thought we were saved by trusting Jesus with our lives. Elsewhere in the Bible, right? How do we get into heaven? Believe in the Lord Jesus, right? Repent of your sin. And, and these two things are, are actually quite related, right? In a sense, one and the same. And we're gonna, if you're wondering, well, wait a second, love God and love others. I don't feel like I do that perfectly. You're onto something. And we'll, we'll come back to that at the end. Verse 29 says, But he, desiring to justify himself, so the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So it, it seems to me the lawyer hears the response and goes, wait a second. Like, like he knows, I'm not sure I do that perfectly. I know that's the right answer. I just don't know that I actually can do that. So what he tries to do is limit, he tries to lower the bar. Like that bar sounds really hot. so so maybe we can limit the definition of who my neighbor is. Who all do I have to show this type of love to? Warren Wiersbe says it really well. Warren Wiersbe is a pastor and and a author. He uh, he says the scribe wants to justify himself by limiting the terms, rather than casting himself on the mercy of God, and truly being justified. Rather than saying, man, that bar is too high. I'm casting myself on the mercy of God and I'll truly be justified. He tries to justify himself by saying, maybe I can lower the bar. So he says, well, who is my neighbor? Define that, Jesus. And in response, Jesus tells him a story, the story we all know well, perhaps the story of the Good Samaritan. But listen closely. Jesus replied, verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about a 17 mile trek right? From Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest. He's going to introduce three people total here, but the first two are religious leaders. So so you set it up, and this would have appealed to the lawyer, to the Pharisees, to say, ah, the hero. He says, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. We don't know exactly why. Does he not want to touch the man? I could be unclean if I touch his uncleanness. Does, does he care about his own safety more? What I mean, there could be robbers still here. This guy clearly got beat. I need to get on my way. We don't know. What we know is he sees it and he ignores it. He goes to the other side and keeps going. Verse 32, so likewise a Levite. The people who helped the priests with their duties. Another religious, supposedly holy man. And when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Two of the good people who look at the man, see his need, and do nothing. Now here's where, verse 33, this is where Jesus is already offended. But he's about to really offend them now. Because in verse 33, he brings the hero of the story. Introduces the hero. And the hero is... A Samaritan. But a Samaritan. And in the original Greek, that placement of Samaritan is emphatic. It's like, it's like Jesus is like, and here's the hero, right? But a Samaritan. And you say, why is that so offensive? If you know the history between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people, uh, it is ugly. Very ugly. And I think sometimes—so so they hate each other. They are prejudiced toward each other. Um, and, and sometimes we say that and we're like, oh, okay, but— but we struggle maybe to emotionally feel the tension between these two groups of people. Right now in our culture, there's a lot of racial tension. There's a lot of philosophical tension. There's a lot of political attention. Warring camps who don't like to associate with one another, don't like to talk to one another, angry at one. I mean, the vitriol you see in our culture right now between opposing camps at times, you have to understand this is what it was like for them. They fought each other killed each other, did not talk to one another, did not associate one with one another, didn't want to travel to one another's regions. If they'd had social media, they certainly would have canceled each other. At one point in time in Jesus's ministry, this probably tells you all you need to know. At one point in time in Jesus's ministry, some of the Jewish leaders try to insult him. Some of the Jewish people try to insult him as horribly as they can, and they come up with two things. They say, you are demon-possessed, and you're a Samaritan. That's like the worst insult. You remember the scene in Sandlot where they're tra- you know, just tra- trading back and forth, right? Yelling at each other, right? You mix your Wheaties with your mama's toe gym, right? You bob for apples in the toilet, and you like it, right? And they go back and forth. Like, that's what's happening here. And the worst, the crescendo of the whole thing is you're a Samaritan. That pretty much tells you all you need to know about the relationship between Jewish people and Samaritans. And here Jesus introduces the Samaritan as the guy who's going to be the good neighbor to the Jew. he says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii. Denarius was a day's wage. So, I mean, if you Let's just say $20 an hour times eight hours, that's $160 times two, 320 It's not a, it's it's a pretty decent sum. It's not like he gives him five bucks. He took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, Jesus says, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Verse 37, the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. Remember I said he's he's prejudiced right against the Samaritan. He can't even bring himself to say Samaritan. right? He doesn't say the Samaritan did, Jesus. He just goes, you can almost imagine begrudgingly, right? Like the one who showed him mercy. Verse 37, and Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Go and and be that kind of neighbor. Now, I want want you to notice how interesting this is. The original question was, how do you inherit eternal life? Jesus says to the lawyer, well, what does the law say, right? Love God and love neighbor. Yes, a lawyer hearing that, seemingly understanding, well, that's a problem because I don't do that perfectly, tries to limit down, well, who is my neighbor? Who all do I have to show love to and compassion to? And Jesus tells him this story, which indirectly does answer his question. Right? Your neighbor is anyone, even a Samaritan, even someone you don't like. Just because you don't like someone doesn't give you a free pass not to be a neighbor to them. They are still your neighbor. And let's be honest, sometimes that's tempting to do that, right? Like, man, I just can't with this person today. Like, you're too annoying. Like too, I, I just can't do, I can't love this person right now. And while that's a temptation for all of us, I would just remind us, praise God, he doesn't do that to us. God doesn't look at us and say, look, I just can't with you today. You're too annoying, too flaky, too faithless, too messed up. You did it again. Like, like he never does that. His mercies are new every morning. He is impossibly seemingly patient with us. And as his followers who have experienced the grace of God, he calls us to be patient with others in that same way to not give up on them, to not treat them that way. Just because you don't like someone or you're fed up with them is not uh, an excuse that not to be the neighbor. So your neighbor is anyone, right, to whom you can show the compassion and mercy of God. But notice Jesus' answer in the story he tells doesn't directly answer that question about who is my neighbor, but rather he flips the question. The better question, if I can say it that way, is, well, how do I be a good neighbor? And that's addressing this man's heart. Because he's saying, well, how do I lower the bar and limit who my neighbor is? And Jesus is like, you've got a cold and hard heart, and you need to understand what it means to be a good neighbor. What does it look like to love someone else as a good neighbor? Because again, sometimes I think the temptation for us is to boil that down and lower it such to just be nice, be a good person. But the cost of discipleship is higher than that. And as followers of Jesus, Jesus says, this is what being a good neighbor looks like. So I want to I dive into that a little more. Look back at verses 33, 34, and 35. I'm going to read it again and then just pull out three things about what does this being a good neighbor truly mean and look like. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back." Three things at least. One, he saw the need. It says a Samaritan came and he saw him. Right Now, you're like, well, the priest and Levite saw him too. Yes, and then they chose to ignore him. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But you can't be a good neighbor if you don't have your eyes up and at least see the need. It is so tempting in our culture because of the amount of need that we often see. You scroll through news sites, right, and it's just problem after problem after problem. And what can happen is you get overwhelmed, and you just say, I'm just going to keep my head down. <laughs> just ignore, Right. <laughs> Pull into my driveway, open the garage door, pull in, close garage door, go in my house, go to backyard, right? The rest of the world doesn't exist. We have to lift up our eyes and look around. What are the needs of my neighborhood? What are the needs of my community? if we don't see the need, we don't even have the opportunity to be a good neighbor. If we're not walking with the Lord and saying, Lord, who are you putting in my path? That's where it starts. We've got to see the need. But then secondly, right, you can see the need and you can choose to ignore it as the priest and the Levite did, or you can have compassion. And that's the second thing. He saw the need, one. Two, he had compassion priest and Levite saw him, ignored him. The difference with the Samaritan is that his heart is moved to compassion or to pity. You cannot be a good neighbor without compassion. You cannot be a good neighbor if your heart has become cold and hard and calloused. And I say that because this is what Jesus did. All right, Jesus saw the masses and it says his heart, the same phrase is used of Jesus over and over. He saw the masses and they were like a sheep, sheep without a shepherd. And his heart was moved to compassion. He had compassion on them. He saw the widow with her son dead and his heart was moved to compassion. He had pity for her. He saw the leper and his condition and his heart was moved to compassion. He saw the rich young ruler who couldn't give up his wealth and he said he loved him. Jesus had a heart. That was moved to compassion by the plight of people and their need. And so, too, we need that heart. We need to say, Jesus, give me, right? Take away the heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh so that I can be moved to compassion. And what fascinates me is that one of the things that seems to anger Jesus the most. I, I, here, I'm going to say this carefully, right? Again. Right belief and right doctrine, what's called orthodoxy, right belief, is important. But right belief without a right heart, compassionate orthodoxy, uncompassionate, whatever the word is, right, lack of compassion, that kind of orthodoxy, right belief without a right heart, that's what angers Jesus. Mark 3 is the religious leaders who've studied the Bible, who know the right answers. They're watching Jesus and they're watching to see whether he's going to heal someone on the Sabbath. And he heals a man with a crippled hand and he looks at them and says, Is it not okay, right, to help someone on the Sabbath day? And he heals this man. You can only imagine the man who's been crippled for years gets his hand restored, probably weeping. It's a beautiful moment. And he looks around and they're all dead silent because they're just watching and waiting to go, He's breaking the rules. You got six days to get healed, people. Don't do it on the Sabbath. And Je- it says, Jesus looks around on them. He's grieved and he's angry. And specifically, it says, He's angry and he's grieved at their hardness of heart. They've got a lot of the right information. They, some of that information is not totally correct, right? But, but they know some of the right answers, but they have no compassion. They've missed the point of the scriptures. They've, they've studied them, but they point to they Christ, and they, don't, and they miss him. And they've got a hardness of heart, and a coldness of heart, and a lack of compassion that makes Jesus furious. We can't be a good neighbor unless we say, Lord, help me as I see the need around me. Not ignore it, but be moved to compassion, moved in my heart to pity. And that pity and that compassion then moves us to action. And that's number three. He met the need even at great cost to himself. He met the need even at great cost to himself. Let's talk about those two things one at a time. Let's talk about just meeting the need first. His compassion moves him to action. This Samaritan looks at a Jew, sees the situation, sees the need, and he takes personal responsibility, even though it's really not his problem. At least it doesn't seem that way. Think of all the excuses he could have made here, right? Like, uh, he's, a, he's a Jew. He's not from my tribe, not from my people, not my problem. I, I got a schedule to keep. <laughs> I, this is going to cost time and money. And, but instead he looks at him and says, well, God put him in my path, and it doesn't appear that anyone else is here. And I have the means to do something about this. I've got the resources. I have the time, even though it might not feel like that. Lord... I'm going to meet the need. I think a challenging question for all of us to ask is this. When is the last time I loved someone like this and they weren't a family member or a friend? When is the last time I loved someone like this and they weren't somebody who was close relationally with me who could repay that kindness? But someone who, man, I do it and I'm I'm not getting anything in return. Not humanly speaking. When's the last time we loved a stranger like this? Love someone that we didn't know or someone that you're like, man, I know they're never going to be able to repay me, but I'm doing this because I think the Lord has called me to do it. He meets the need. He so easily could have turned the other way. It's going to cost him time. It's going to cost him money. If I linger here, I could get robbed. This is not a nice place to be. It's not necessarily safe. But this is where he got it right, right? Back to this idea of compassion. The Samaritan looks at the man, and if I can say it this way, it seems like the thing he asks in his heart and mind is, what if that were What if that were me? Instead of just saying, man, I, this is going to cost me, he says, what if that were me? If I were the one laying on the road, what would I want me to do in this situation? And that's I mean, that's the literal outworking of love your neighbor as yourself is when you see that person and you see the need, you're not going to. And and let's just be honest, right? It is so easy to see certain people, see certain needs and say, oh, this is going to cost me time. I don't have the time for that. Like, this is going to cost money. I don't know exactly what to do here. And in fact, I, so I was talking to a guy this week from our church and I was talking about this and, and honestly how convicting it was to me. Like how often do I get in those situations and go, what if that were me? And he said, "Kale, I think oftentimes we get in those situations and we don't say, what if that were me? We say, oh God, thank you that that's not me. And that struck me, right, that that oftentimes maybe we get in those situations and we kind of come away just going, man, I just want to be grateful that I'm not in that situation. Rather than saying, Lord, do you want me to do something about that situation if possible? And listen, I I know, I want to say this, I know that this requires wisdom. In our complex world, like there's a lot of problem, there's a lot of need, nobody can do everything. Nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something. Nobody can do every, but everybody can do something. And I think our heart attitude in those moments is so important, so important that we look and we're asking that question, what if that were me? What would I want me to do if, that, if I were in that situation? Not, oh Lord, just thank you for not letting that be me. That's, that's not where our faith should take us. The scriptures say our faith the only thing that matters is faith working itself out through love. The faith without works is dead. When we see the problem, it shouldn't just be... I'm not saying gratitude is wrong, right? To say, Lord, I'm thankful I'm not in that position. That's fair. But I think we should be saying, Lord, you've given me time and resources and love. Can I help this person and do something about this situation? Even, this is the second part, even at great cost to ourselves. I think if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we say like, are you willing to help? yes. But what we mean by that is, if it doesn't inconvenience me too much. I'm, yeah, can you help me? Absolutely. If it fits within my schedule and doesn't overly inconvenience me. But if this is going to cost me a lot of time and a lot of money, I mean, think about this, right? It costs this Samaritan to help that man, to, to intervene here. It is time and, I mean, total disruption to his schedule it is money, resources. Here's the wine. Here's the oil. Here, take my animal. Like, he gets uncomfortable. He inconveniences himself in order to help this man. Like, you take my car, right? It's a 17-mile trek. Here, have my vehicle, right? Let's make you comfortable, and I'll be uncomfortable. And then when we get to the end, here's hundreds of dollars, an and, and innkeeper, whatever else, right, while I'm putting this man up at the hotel, whatever else, whatever other bill he racks up while he's here, I'll pay for it when I get back. That is great cost. That is being seriously inconvenienced for the sake of a neighbor. And I think if we're, if we're looking at ourselves going, I just don't know that I'm willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of someone else, especially for the sake of a stranger like that. Why would I do that? Here's why. Because that's what Jesus did for us. Sometimes people have overly allegorized this story, right? And they're like, everything in the story represents something else, and sort of take away the, like, go and do likewise part. And that's wrong. But, but there, is, there is some symbolism here, I think. I think it is fair to say, like, you and I really are the man on the the line on the side of the road. And Jesus, if I can say it this way, is the great Samaritan who comes by and doesn't just say, sorry, I can't deal with this right now. But at great cost to himself, goes to the cross to pay for our sin, to bind up our wounds, to heal us. And that's why we should do it for other people. is because that's that's what Jesus did for us. And if we're saying, I just don't know that I'm willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of someone else, I think we have to go back to the gospel and say, have I really experienced the grace of God in my own life? Because that's not what Jesus did for me. Jesus went to the cross for me and loved me at great cost to himself. And I think he expects us, yes, go and do likewise. By the way, before we close, I have a sneaking like, suspicion in my head that some people, I keep thinking about the person on the highway, like on the literal highway who's on the side of the road and the car stopped, and I have this sneaking fear that people are going to be like, that's the primary application. Every time I see someone on the highway, I should pull over across three lanes no matter how fast I'm going. That's not the primary application, okay? Yes, if you have the ability to stop and ask that person if they're okay safely, do it. But I just have this vision in my head of being like, you're going 80 miles an hour with traffic all around you, and you're like, pastor said I need to stop, right? You whip over and endanger everyone else around you, including the person stopped on the highway. Don't do that. That's not the primary application of the text. It's about our hearts, right, and our willingness to say, man, if I can help, I'm going to. Let me close with this. I want to make sure, I just mentioned it, but I want to make sure we tie this text so tightly to the gospel. Because I think it's possible if you don't place what Jesus said here in the context of of Jesus' overall teaching and ministry and in the overall teaching of the New Testament, that maybe you could walk away misinterpreting, thinking, well, that's kind of works-based salvation. You know, Jesus said, if I want to get into heaven, I got to love God, I got to love others, I got to do that perfectly. Okay, I'm going to go try to do that, and I'm going to work my way to heaven. And I think here's what the scriptures would say. Yes, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength perfectly, and you love your neighbor as yourself perfectly, you're fine. You got nothing to worry about. The trouble is, if we're honest with ourselves, we go, I don't do that. Like, even if I were to do that today perfectly for the rest of my life, I know I haven't done that to this moment. I don't think I can do that perfectly. I feel like I fall utterly short of the standard. And in some ways, that's the point. This is why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, 23 through 25, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Only one person has loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved his neighbor always perfectly as himself. And that's Jesus Christ. And we trust him for our salvation and righteousness. That's why he says, and we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That means a sacrifice for our forgiveness by his blood to be received by faith. We we don't save ourselves by saying, "If, if I can just achieve this kind of neighborliness, then maybe God will love me. No, it's Man, I know that God has loved me through Christ. He was the perfect neighbor. He loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He went to the cross for me. I'm trusting him for my salvation. He was righteous in my place. and By grace through faith, he took my sin, nailed it to the cross, gave me his righteousness. And so then you go, well, do we still have to go and do likewise? Yes. But we go and seek to do likewise from that place of complete acceptance and forgiveness. We don't go and do likewise as a means of salvation. We go and do likewise as an outworking of our salvation. We recognize Jesus died in my place. He paid it all. And all to him I owe. For sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. My sin is gone. He did this perfectly in my place. And because I've trusted him, because he loved me, I now can go forgiven, freed from sin and empowered by his Holy Spirit. I can go and do likewise. Love others the way that he loved me. I can think of no better way for us to close out than by taking communion together We just said, right, we're not saved by our own merit or effort, but rather by the shed blood and broken body of Christ at the cross. So if you want to take a moment and get the elements, uh, we're going to take communion here in just a moment. I want to encourage you as you reflect on what we've taught, what we've heard from the Scriptures here, uh, just to take a moment and to pray. Um, Get your heart ready to take communion. Scripture talks about taking it in a way that's Uh, worthy of the Lord and taking it not in an unrighteous manner, but in a way that we, I think, approach the Lord humbly. If you need to confess sin, if you need to just take a moment and say, Lord, I, I have not been a good neighbor. I have not loved others this way. Confess that to the Lord. Thank him for his perfect righteousness in your place. And commit today to saying, Lord, help me to be this kind of neighbor to those around me. Help me to love you and to love others because you first loved me. Take a moment and pray and prepare your heart and then we'll take communion. Before we take communion together, uh, I'll say if, if you're uh, a believer, even joining us from another church context, we welcome you to take communion with us. Uh, if you're not a believer and you're listening in today, we're thrilled that you're here, thrilled that you're listening. Um, taking communion is the one thing we would ask you to abstain from because when you take communion, you say, I have accepted Christ. He is mine and I am his and I'm taking his shed blood and broken body uh, as my own for me. And so that's the one thing we ask you to abstain from. But 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So in remembrance of Jesus' body, broken for us at the cross, we take it together. In the same way, verse 25, in the same way also he took the cup and after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so in remembrance of Jesus' blood shed for us, but also in anticipation of his return. We take it together. Father, thank you uh, for uh, the Lord's Supper. Thank you for the reminder that it is uh, of what you've done for us. Jesus, thank you for loving us first. God, forgive us when we have not loved you. We have not loved others as you call us to. Thank you for the forgiveness of sin. And God, will you help us from this day forward uh, to be a neighbor, a good neighbor to those around us, to any you put into our path. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.